Psalm 63 is our text for this morning, and hopefully in this text, we will find some hope and some courage and some encouragement uh, together here today. This will be kind of a middle of a of sermon and a little bit of just Bible study together. So um, let me read it for us, though. Psalm 63 is the word of God for us today. The superscription says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And here's the text. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed and meditate uh, on the watches of the night, for you, or meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Will you pray with me, friends? Lord, we bow before you. We thank you for your word. And we ask you that you would give us refreshment for our souls and courage and encouragement during this strange season in your word. Help us find a way that our hearts can find great joy. That's our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The scene surrounding the writing of this psalm was one of pure tragedy. And I don't know that any of us could imagine the sorrow or the pain. It's the pain of a man attacked by his son. A man driven from his home, forced to flee for his own life. He's being chased down by his own offspring. This happened in the later years of King David's kingship. And Absalom, his son, marched into Jerusalem with an army. He sought the throne, and for a time at least, David had to flee into the wilderness. I guess if you were thinking about when this happened, it would be, I don't know, somewhere, give or take, 10 years of 990 BC. But the Bible tells us that David went to hide in the wilderness when Absalom came into Jerusalem and tried to steal the kingdom from his father. And it's likely that while David had fled to the wilderness in that desolate place, while running from his son, while experiencing the hardships of the wild, David wrote Psalm 63. David was in great personal pain. He was in great emotional pain. He was in physical danger. But as you see in this psalm, David was not without hope. Even in the desert, the soul of David finds rest. He finds refreshment for his soul in God. Now, if you want to be an outline maker today, there are two key points, but two things you need to know. The first point has four sort of sub points, and you might actually want to more graphically represent them in a circle. You'll see what I mean in just a minute. The second one has two 
uh, halves to it. So that's kind of how you might want to lay things out today. And our first point, which will seem strange until we see it together, is to get into the cycle of soul satisfaction. Get into the cycle of soul satisfaction. Um, it's going to be verses 1 through 5. It says this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. The question we want to start with here is, what is it that you and I all long for? And for different people, the answer to that question is going to sound different. Some people would say, oh, the thing I want more than anything in life is a family. Maybe it's a, you want a spouse, you want children. Some people would say that money is what they're after. Comforts, entertainment. Money so they can have comforts and entertainment. Some people would say, I just want to be happy. All of the answers will sound different, but they're all really saying the same thing. They're just trying to come at it from a different angle. Every human being on the face of the earth desires that his or her heart be full. That his heart, that her heart be satisfied. And that's true of you no matter whether you want some big, beautiful house, you think that'll make you happy? Or whether it's that you want some big, beautiful vacation because you think that'll make you happy? Or it's because you think you want your name to be known by many people because you think that would make you happy? At the end of the day, you think that there's something that will satisfy your soul and that's what you want. You want something to fill your soul and make you feel contented and full. Just like St. Augustine talked about that, that people, every human being has in their heart this, this God-sized opening, right? That only the Lord can fill. Uh, we want our hearts full. Well, verses 1 through 5 of this psalm, the Lord is going to let you see how to find the satisfaction your soul craves. And what you're going to find out is that it is a cycle. It's a cyclical thing. If you get, in to, get into this pattern, it continues and grows in your heart. So I'm going to give you the cycle, and we're going to talk about how to, how to depict it for those of you who want to be a little more artistic. It, the, the four things are seek God earnestly, glorify God when he reveals himself to you, Find satisfaction in the glory of God and let that satisfaction lead you to begin the cycle anew. So seek God, glorify God, find satisfaction in God, start again. But don't try to, you can write them down on the list if you want to, but if you want to depict it, it'll come out a little better in just a second. Now, if we follow this pattern, we're going to find heart satisfaction in God. It will have refreshed souls. We'll find our souls content and filled. So let's watch David show us in this psalm a cycle that satisfies your soul, even in the middle of, of David's own personal tragedy. So look at verse 1. It says, O God, you are my God. 
earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So David begins with the phrase here, O God, you are my God. And in Hebrew, the two words for God are different words. One is Elohim, which is the common Old Testament word for God. And the second is El, which is a word that reminds us of God's great might, his strength, his power. So David here is expressing confidence in God, in God's great power and and in God's great protection. And of course, David points here to his relationship with God. David's words are the words of a man who knows God. You are my God. And really, if if you have studied your Old Testament very much, you'll know that David's words actually look like covenant making or covenant reaffirming words. God, you are my God. I am your servant. When the Lord made a covenant with his people, he very often said, I will be their God. They shall be my people. Same kind of concept is being uh, illustrated here. But look what David declares. He says about God, he is God. Earnestly, I seek you. David is going to seek God with everything he's got. He's going to diligently chase after God. He's going to try to follow God. He hungers for God. He thirsts for God. His soul hungers for God like his body would thirst for water in the desert. And this is the first step in the cycle. Seek God earnestly. So if you're writing it down, you might make room to put the four things in a little circular cycle. And at the top of the circle have seek God up there. Seek God earnestly at the top of your cycle here. And then ask yourself this question. Do you hunger for God? Do you desire God? And I'm not asking you here if you want the things God can give you. I'm asking, do you hunger and thirst for him, for fellowship with God, for a glimpse of his glory? for a moment in his holy presence. If you do, you're on your way. But if not, you need to let your lack of desire drive you to your knees before God, asking him to change your heart. It is the natural outgrowth of a relationship with God that you will hunger for more of God. David did. But why did David hunger for more of God? Look at verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David hungers for God based on what David has seen in the past. In the past, David has experienced the glory of God. He has felt God's power. He's been moved and satisfied by the beauty and the glory of God. His experiences of worship were wonderful things. And even now, while David is driven out of Jerusalem in the desert, his experiences from his past drive his hunger for God in the present. And I would say to you that this is, if you're doing the circle, the fourth point in the cycle, that you let your satisfaction lead you to begin the cycle anew. So you might say start over. It could be the point if you want to let your satisfaction, that you're satisfied, encourages you, motivates you to start the cycle afresh. 
let your satisfaction in God, when God has satisfied your soul, lead you to seek God earnestly. The question is, why do you seek God, David? Why does your soul hunger and thirst for God? And the answer is, because I've seen him. I've seen his power. I've seen his glory. I cannot be satisfied in any other way than if I'm in in his presence. Now, I'm going to help you picture this. And probably the best way to do it is to picture a young couple in love. I mean, get all, get all sappy, squishy young couple in love when you think about this, okay? It's a, it's a Saturday. The couple, they get up, they get ready. The man, uh, young man drives over to pick up this young lady that he loves. Maybe they're going to be married someday. And they go and they go for a walk in the park. They have a picnic lunch and it's all sweet and little birdies are chirping in the trees and it's just so beautiful. They go for a drive. Maybe they go walk down the beach. You know, this is a great spot. They can find an outdoor cafe by the sea. It makes the best sushi rolls ever. Depending on what you like, you might take that part out. They laugh and they talk and it's just a great day and they watch the sunset. And he drives her home and he drops her off at her home and he goes to his home. And what happens next? Sometimes if the couple, the couple here is really in love, I mean sappy, sweet in love, he calls her. He talks with her on the phone or FaceTime or whatever. And you might say to yourself, but didn't he get enough of talking to her? I mean, he was with her all day. Yeah, but that just makes him want to be with her more. The happier he was with her during the day, the more he wants to keep talking to her in the evening. In a small way, in a small way, this is a picture of what it might be like to experience God. Because when you've seen him, when you have experienced his power, when you've experienced the glory of worshiping God, when you've seen his truth come to you from his word and teach you new and glorious things and give your heart courage and joy, when you've seen that kind of stuff, you can't get enough of it. The experience will satisfy your soul, yes, but it makes you long for even more of the same satisfaction. That is our God. So are you, have you been satisfied in your walk with God? Are you satisfied in your walk with God right now? Are you, are you personally content? Do you, do you think to yourself, oh, I've got enough. I've had enough God in my life. I hope not. You should want more. If you have no hunger for more of God in your life, you probably haven't experienced much of God in your life. And if that's the case, you start at the top of the cycle and seek God. For once you truly experience our great and glorious God, you're going to want to experience him more and more. Now, why? Why is this true? Look at verses three and four of the psalm. 
Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. Those are great words from David. Why does he want more of God? Because God's loving kindness is better than life. That is good. How many of you guys have ever used a balance scale? before. You guys remember like science class where you had to do it maybe and it has the little, the top and that goes one side or the other. Use a balance scale. Well, on one side of the scale, put life. I mean, everything that you think is good about life, put in this one side. All the things, all the value we place on our lives. Think of how much care you take of your life. You want to live. You spend time. You spend money trying to keep yourself alive. People spend a fortune on trying to live longer and make their lives more comfortable. We love being alive. But on the other side of the balance scale, just put the love of God. David is saying that, again, whichever side goes down is the heavier side of the scale. David is saying no matter how great life is, the love of God dramatically outweighs it. It is significantly greater than every bit of the good of life put together. When David seeks God, he experiences the love of God. And the love of God that David experiences, David says, is better than all of life. Now, shouldn't that change how we approach God? We're approaching the one whose love is better than every bit of life put together. How should that impact how we think and how we speak and how we worship? I want you to listen to what John Piper has to say about this verse. He says, This means that David wanted God more than he wanted life. And if you want God more than you want life, then you want God more than you want all the joys of this life. Family, health, food, friendship, sexual relations, job satisfaction, productivity, books, skateboards, computers, music, homes, sunsets, fall colors. When David says that the love of God is better than life and therefore better than all the beauty that life means, he's not denying that all these good things come from the love of God. He's warning us rather that if our hearts settle even gratefully on the beauty of the gift, and do not yearn for the infinitely greater beauty of the giver, then we are idolaters and not worshipers of God. Now, what does David naturally do? Because God's love is better than life itself, three things are listed. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David's experience of God's love leads him to praise God. It leads him to bless God. It leads him to lift his hands in God's name. Now, that probably means when you see someone in the Bible lifting their hands, it's usually an act showing that they're praying to God. So he's saying, I'm going to keep seeking you and keep praising you and keep blessing you. This, in the cycle, is the second step. Glorify God when he reveals himself to you. Right? Seek God, glorify God. When you experience God, you will respond to God in praise. That is as natural as saying, wow, when you see a flash of lightning 
or a gorgeous sunset, or a beautiful baby, or a spectacular waterfall, or a 500-foot home run, or you hear a violin virtuoso, whatever it is, when something impresses us, we praise it, right? When you experience the glory of God, when you experience something of his magnificence and his grace and his goodness, your natural, reflexive, right response is to worship God. Now look what the praise, that when we worship God, what does praise do for us? Look at verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So David says his soul is now satisfied. Up in verse 1, he was hungering and thirsting for God like a man in the desert. But now he sees God's glory. He's recognized God's goodness. He has praised God. He has given God glory. And what happened? David's soul is satisfied. Satisfied like a man who's just eaten the richest of foods. And this is the third step in the cycle. Find satisfaction in the glory of God. I would put that at the bottom of a circle if you're making a circle. So here's a key to all Christian life. We want to be satisfied. And we were created by God for a purpose. When we fulfill the purpose for which God made us, we will find our souls satisfied. So what's the purpose? Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7 say, The Lord says, I will say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar. We're talking about people. And my daughters from the ends of the earth. We're talking about people. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why did God create us? The Bible is absolutely clear in a myriad of places. God made you and me for God's glory. So when we glorify God, we're doing the very thing we were created to do. And guess what? That thing we do when we glorify God satisfies our souls. Why? Because God's love is better than life. His glory is awesome to behold. And we are created perfectly to be responders to the glory of God. Now look at the last line of verse 5 again. It says, again, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So what does the satisfaction of David's soul lead David to do? It leads David back to praise. What does praise accomplish? Praise glorifies God. When we glorify God, what happens? Our souls are further satisfied. And that's why the fourth point in the cycle says that we let it lead us to start over. So first, you seek God earnestly. You glorify God when he reveals himself to you. You're going to find satisfaction in the glory of God and let the satisfaction lead you to begin the cycle anew, which means you will go back to seeking God you will, you will see God's glory when you seek God. You will glorify God, and that will satisfy your soul, and that makes you start again. Seek God, glorify God, find your soul satisfied in the glory of God, start anew. This is a beautiful cycle. Seek God, praise God, be satisfied by God. And then you start over because you want to do it again and again and again and again. And that's what worship is about. Now, let me show you one more thing. 
It's another reason you can seek and worship God. And it's what David mentions next. It is David's confidence. Because remember, every bit of what I'm talking about here, it comes in David's flight, his running from Absalom. So point number two, take shelter in the God who satisfies your soul. The big point two, take shelter in the God who satisfies your soul. And the first half of this point is remember God's past faithfulness to you. Remember God's past faithfulness. Look at verses five through eight. Keeps us in context here. It says, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So simply put, David here remembers how God has been faithful to him. On his bed, in the middle of the night, David remembers God's faithfulness. Even when David is running for his life, he remembers God's faithfulness from the past. Now with this, I'm not suggesting that David or anybody else should pretend that we've never been hurt, (coughs) excuse me, that we've never been hurt or that we've never suffered loss. We've all had experiences of pain and sorrow and sadness, but moments of suffering, even long seasons of suffering, do not declare God to be unfaithful. In truth, the faithfulness of God to sinners like us, his faithfulness to keep us when we have deserved his wrath, his making us able to even study a passage of scripture like we're doing right now, that faithfulness is, is great and it's wonderful. And we've got many other experiences in our lives that, of moments when God has shown us his sweet kindness, his great faithfulness. What do you do when you wake up in the middle of the night? Do you worry? Do you fret? How about do something else? Why not when you wake up in the middle of the night, begin to make a mental list of God's past faithfulness to you? There's an old commentator who writes about this. I don't want to name him because I actually don't trust him most of the time, but great quote here. He says, quote, nothing can be more proper than that our last thoughts as we sink into quiet slumber should be of God, of his being, his character, his mercy, his loving kindness, of the dealings of his providence and the manifestations of his grace toward us during the day. And nothing is better suited to compose the mind to rest and to induce quiet and gentle slumber than the calmness of soul which arises from the idea of an infinite God and from confidence in him. Often when restless in our beds, when nothing else will lull the body to rest, the thought of God, the contemplation of his greatness, his mercy and his love, the sweet sense of an assurance of his favor, will soothe us and cause us to sink into gentle repose. David could sleep in the middle of difficulty. Why? Because he remembered God's past faithfulness. His soul clings to his faithful God and he knows God holds him secure. The same thing needs to be true for you and me. Think about how faithful God has been to you. 
Start listing the faithful things from God you can remember. Start thinking about those great moments, whatever whatever positive, glorious moment you have from studying the Word of God, from singing God's praises, from knowing God was with you. Then the second part, trust God to be faithful in the future. This is the last half point. Trust God to be faithful in the future. Look at verses 9 to 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The last thought here is very simple. God will keep his children ultimately safe. God will destroy the wicked. And David here uses terms of battles from his day. The wicked are going to fall by the sword. Their bodies are going to be prey for jackals, scavengers, right? But those who swear by God, those who are truly calling on the Lord, those who are seeking God hungrily, they will glory. They will rejoice in God's glory. But the contrast is those who are evil, those who lie, those who use God's name but falsely, the evil Absalom who's chasing after David and trying to drive him out, their mouths will be stopped. David knows God is going to be faithful. Why? Because God has always been faithful. Now you might say to yourself, but I don't know that I feel that way. I can look around the world, I can see ugly things, and I can say God has not always judged all the wicked. Sometimes the righteous have been the ones who died, not the wicked. I want you to hear John Calvin's words on this, commenting on verse 10. Calvin says, It is often denounced as one judgment which should befall the wicked, that they would perish by the sword and become the prey of wolves and of dogs without privilege of sepulture. That means without being buried. Calvin says, but this is a fate which the best of men have met with in the world. For good as well as bad are exposed to the stroke of temporal evil. But there is this distinction, Calvin says, that God watches over the scattered dust of his own children, gathers it again, and will suffer nothing of them to perish. Whereas when the wicked are slain and their bones spread on the field, this is only preparatory to their everlasting destruction. Fact is, God is always going to do rightly. God has always done rightly. And in the final judgment, when you see what God has done from beginning to end, you will say, praise God, Every single thing you've ever done from beginning to end is absolutely perfect. So trust in God, the satisfier of your soul. Trust God for his past faithfulness. Trust him to be faithful in the future. And let it comfort you. And let it lead you to get into that cycle of satisfaction, right? Seek God. Glorify God when he lets you see him. Let the glory of God satisfy your soul as you praise him and let that lead you to start anew. Seek God. Glorify God. Find your soul satisfied because you praised the God you were created to praise and let that make you start anew. Seek God. Glorify God. 
Let your soul be satisfied by God. Start anew. That is how we find our joy, our comfort, and our hope in this life. But let me say to you, there is no satisfaction in your soul that, can't, that doesn't start with you coming to the Lord for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We're sinners. Confess to God that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave. Determine that you want to follow Jesus more than you want to be the boss of your own life. And ask Jesus, oh Lord Jesus, please forgive my sins. Lord Jesus, please save my soul. And ask Jesus to become the treasure of your life. The only one, the only one who can satisfy your very soul. That is our hope. And I pray that you will do so if you don't know Jesus. And if you do know Jesus, I pray that you will begin to even greater see how he satisfies your soul. Let's pray, friends. Lord, thank you again for your word. And thank you for the satisfaction of soul that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. We desire to know him more and more. Lord, we seek you. Show us your glory. Let us praise you. Let us see how that satisfies our soul. And let us see how that makes us go again and again and again back to this cycle. We trust you because you've been faithful in the past. We trust you because we know you've promised to be faithful in the future. And nothing that happens here in this life, nothing that happens that we face in the here and now, nothing will change your great faithfulness. So help us to have our hearts tuned to seek you and to praise you, to remember you, and to look forward to your goodness. And it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.